Welcome to the Health Disparities Podcast, a program of the Movement is Life Caucus, where we have conversations about health disparities with people who are working to eliminate them. I'm Eileen Bodie. I've been a member of the caucus for 10 years, and I'm delighted to be hosting today's conversation with Dr. Eric Santos, an orthopedic surgeon and founder and CEO of the South Central Texas Bone and Joint Center, and also chief of surgery at Corpus Christi Medical Center. We'll be talking today about caring for people with joints in rural Texas, among many other topics. Good day, Dr. Santos. Hello. Nice to be here. We're going to start off with a few introductory questions, and then we'll get into a few specifics. Can you tell me a little bit about your practice down there in Corpus Christi? Sure. I uh, have a a private practice, uh, mainly by myself, but my wife is a family practitioner. She occasionally helps the patients uh, in my office. I have uh, uh, two offices, one in Corpus Christi and then another one in McAllen, uh, Texas, uh, that's a shared office with uh, two other orthopedic surgeons. And so I have a, a very general practice in, uh, in terms of orthopedic surgery. Uh, we see a lot of uh, uh, workers' comp patients that get injured on the job. Uh, so I treat fractures. I treat arthritis. I treat uh, sports medicine problems, uh, pretty much anything that walks through the door. I also do uh, more and more, I've been doing more medical legal work and uh, uh, also treating uh, victims of uh, auto accidents and things like that where they uh, uh, get injured. Sam, how would you describe your, your patient uh, population? Is it predominantly Hispanic or is it uh, pretty diverse? Well, so in, in Corpus Christi, it's uh, uh, probably uh, about 45 percent white and about uh, 50 percent Hispanic and then maybe five percent of other uh, minorities like uh, Asian and uh, and, uh, African-American. In uh, uh, McAllen, it's probably more like 80 percent Hispanic, which is down uh, near the border. Do you find that um, there's a difference between a Caucasian patient and a, and a Hispanic patient in terms of how you treat them? I mean, I guess it depends. I'm, I'm kind of culturally aware of, uh, I try to bring that to my practice. Uh, I mean, for example, with the Hispanic patients, I, you know, I speak to them in Spanish a lot of times. Uh, with uh, uh, white patients, it depends. Uh, some, uh, I, in certain seasons, I get what we call winter Texans, where they come in from Minnesota or Michigan, somewhere up north, and they're uh, in uh, in my area for uh, a few months, and then they leave. So, so there's some dynamics uh, involved with that. But you, you, my philosophy is you basically treat everybody with respect. Uh, I basically treat everybody like as if they were a member of my family. What would I do? I always have that in the back of my mind. If this were my mom or my uncle or my brother, how would I treat them? And that's my philosophy in terms of uh, treating my patients. Now, social determinants is a, um, is, is a big uh, topic today. And I'm sure that it impacts how you treat some of your Hispanic patients versus your Caucasian patients. Do you find social determinants uh, a major issue in dealing with your patients? I think it's a huge issue, uh, especially uh, down in the valley where uh, really the, uh, the level of poverty is a lot higher. 
you see a lot of patients that really just struggle in uh, just, you know, month to month, just paying bills or, or in their jobs, you know, and especially when I see workers' comps patients, I mean, they will get uh, paid uh, as part of their injury for a certain amount of time, not their full salary, but but a, por- a proportion of it. But once that ends, and some of them are in real trouble, and it, and it can affect a lot of times the, the care that they receive. Let me ask this question. To what extent do you think that it's important that the race and gender of an orthopedist uh, and other physicians, of course, reflect the community that they're serving? Well, it, it's it's a huge thing because I think, uh, especially in orthopedic surgery, uh, it's 95% white males. Uh, you, I think you really need to understand the community. You need to be able to relate to your patients to provide good good care. And if you're not aware of, of, of the cultural background of those patients, uh, then it's difficult to, to really render uh, as good a care as you, as you really should. Now, I understand, uh, interesting enough, that you became, you sort of switched roles and became a patient recently. You uh, had a skiing accident. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, sure. I uh, was uh, skiing with my family in Colorado uh, uh, after Thanksgiving, and I... Uh, uh, was probably going a little too fast and uh, hit a tree with my skis and ended up uh, breaking one of my legs. And so I was on the other side of the scalpel at that point. Uh, uh, of course, as a physician, I was uh, treated very well, but but you get to see exactly, you know, what your patients experience. And, you know, some of it is, uh, you know, okay, well, I had some pain, uh, I knew how to deal with it more on an intellectual level. And I think some patients, uh, the way you deal with it uh, in terms of the pain levels and things that are happening, it's a lot better if you're educated. And that's one of my philosophies is when I talk to the patients, I really try to educate them and make sure that their uh, expectations are managed uh, because if you're expecting surgery without any pain, then then you're in for a rough surprise. I could pretty much... Uh, navigate the system and uh, and know what to expect, uh, but you know patients uh, need that education. My wife is always telling me that I'm I'm pushing myself too hard and and to slow down more <laughs> because after the injury, for example, I you know I I, I said no well, six weeks is enough. I'm getting off the walker, and after another few weeks, I got off the cane and. Basically, she's saying, you know, hold back some, hold back some. But uh, as we like to say in our family, there's no cure for stubbornness. That's for sure. Now, you became an orthopedic patient as a result of your accident. So what did you learn as a patient to make you a better physician? Well, some of it is, you know, I think you you get a sense of empathy uh, when you go through something like that. I had been uh, an orthopedic patient before uh, when I was younger. I, I had op- an operation on my shoulder, and that kind of uh, helped me uh, kind of focus on my career and say, look, this is something maybe I really want to do with my life. And now that I'm much older and uh, I don't know about wiser, but at least I've had some life experience, you know, it helps you see uh, what your patients are experiencing in a 
in a more focused light. You know, some it, some of it may help me uh, understand what they're going through. You know, the other uh, on the other side of the coin is, you know, I can tell them, look, you know, this happened to me. Uh, this is what you should expect, and you know, if I can go through it, you certainly can go through it, and let's work together to uh, help it be better. So then you had an interesting position when you were a patient in Colorado because you were in the hospital in Colorado. Is that right? Yes. So did you witness any health care disparities uh, with any other patients? I realize you're a physician. You probably got special treatment. But did you witness anything that was something that caused you to be concerned? Uh, not really, but, I mean, uh, I mean, you have to imagine, you know, I was hospitalized in a, in a hospital that uh, probably caters to uh, a much more upscale uh, clientele than in, than the hospitals I go to usually because uh, I'm in nec- right next to a ski resort. Uh, and sure, there are probably some uh, injuries that happen to people who are of uh, uh, lower means, but I would say that hospital would, was in a lot better shape uh, in terms of what they could offer uh, than other places uh, that didn't have the resources. I think one of the big problems we have these days is, you know, the closing of rural hospitals, the closing of uh, safety net hospitals, and really what we do need is is better universal health care to bring everything up to up to speed and to be able to offer the services that people need. Uh, you know, I'm not too worried about uh, the people in that part of Colorado uh, in terms of uh, being able to uh, sustain that hospital because they are going to get a lot of insured patients and a lot of people that be able to pay their bills. I'm more worried about the safety net hospitals and the rural hospitals that uh, are struggling and that you need in those uh, areas that are poorly served uh, to be able to uh, uh, help uh, those patients. Safety desk hospitals are, are in major, facing major financial difficulties right now. A lot of them are closing. Why do you think safety net hospitals are important? You really do need a safety net hospitals. Actually, really what you do need is, is a better system of universal health care. And, I mean, that can be through a variety of, of things. I mean, you know, if you listen to the Democratic uh, 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 candidates right now, you know, you got everything from uh, 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 Medicare for All, which would be uh, fantastic, uh, to, you know, a measured approach, expanding what has been done with the ACA. Uh, but really, you still, I think it should be a right for everybody to be receiving health care and be able to have it be affordable uh, uh, to their means. And right now, uh, because of the patchwork that we have, uh, really the safety net hospitals are the only thing where some people can turn to where they have no insurance or underinsured or on Medicaid, uh, things like that, where uh, that's the only place where they can get care. And even then, you know, it may be on an emergent basis that they may be able to get care instead of really if you have everybody have uh, some kind of a health care insurance or, uh, or a program where everybody's covered, you can get them into primary care, you can get them in and avoid uh, worse problems in the future. 
I want to circle back to that. So why is universal care so important? It, it really, it, I mean, it's it should be a human right. I mean, everybody should be able to get health care. And this is one of the few countries where we don't have it. You know, most other countries, I mean, despite all the criticisms of uh, of other countries, I mean, they're able to provide, ex, you know, pretty decent health care to all their citizens. Uh, I mean, they may have to wait for elective procedures for a while, but here it's, you know, the disparities are enormous. You have people who are well insured, I mean, who can receive health care uh, whenever they want, and it but it's getting harder and harder. I mean, I will tell you that uh, it, uh, in order for employee, you know, we uh, work with employers a lot of times in workers' comp, but also regular health insurance, you know, they've had to pass on their, uh, their cost to their employees where their deductibles are going way up. Uh, it's not unusual to have some plans that are six or $8,000 uh, deductibles and, you know, just the normal uh, worker cannot afford that. And so, and so you get people who end up in bankruptcy because of medical bills. I mean, that really uh, should not happen. I think it should be uh, something where the uh, government can uh, at least provide a, a basic uh, set of health services. Uh, you can engage the private uh, system in that as well. Um, but at this point, uh, the system is broken, and it really does need a lot more help. What are some of the challenges that people face who are, say, um, who are uninsured? I mean, what are their options for health care if the safety net hospitals are going away and they don't have insurance? Well, I'll give you a good example. My, uh, my wife, who's, who's fantastic, she's a primary care physician. Uh, she works... Uh, uh, she has basically two jobs that she goes to. One's a, a mostly volunteer job at a place called Timmins Ministries, and she basically started a, a, a free clinic there, and she offers services to people who are uninsured, homeless, uh, who basically can't afford anything else. And so you're relying on volunteers uh, for those kinds of things. There's uh, basically two uh, places, uh, one's, uh, 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 the other one's called Mission of Mercy in, uh, in Corpus Christi to offer those kinds of services. Uh, and then she also works for a federally uh, funded health care uh, uh, clinic uh, and uh, treats patients with uh, uh, HIV and patients who are on Medicaid and things like that where they can offer, you know, reduced care services or um, citing uh, uh, fee schedules for those patients. Uh, but, you know, what if they need hospitalization? I mean, we have one, uh, we had one safety net hospital. They kind of got merged into a non, uh, with a nonprofit uh, uh, Catholic uh uh, healthcare provider, uh, but really what's happened is that they're not offering the services that they should be offering, uh, where, you know, patients are being shunted away uh, when they should be treated because there's a capacity problem, and we're not offering those services. So really it comes down to, 
you got to have universal health care. Do you think not having insurance or limited access to health care disproportionately affects Hispanic patients? Well, it affects uh, Hispanic patients, it affects uh, minorities at a disproportionate uh, level. And it's, you know, I think it it's for a variety of reasons. Uh, some of them are because of uh, uh, poverty, but also, you know, there, there are areas where it can be institutional racism or more subtle ways where, you know, if you're white, you may be uh, better treated than if you're Hispanic or if you're or if you're black. But in the end, I think it a lot of it comes down to socioeconomic uh, status. What do you mean by institutional racism? Well, I mean if you're looking at what happened in the South and the Jim Crow era, uh, you see where people live and what kind of neighborhoods they they live. You know, we have a problem. You know, one zip code. You may live to be 65 on average, uh, while if you go to a more affluent neighborhood and look at that zip code, you're living to be 83, 85. And so what's going on there? Well, you know, some of it is, you know, what services are being offered in those neighborhoods. You know, are there clinics available? Are there grocery stores available? Is there... Uh, there are parks where people can walk safely. Those things all go into that. There, there's a definite push for bundled payments in the current health care system. How is that going to impact minority patients? Well, that's already evident uh, in our region. We're one of the regions where bundled payments has uh, come active. And what you're seeing is that uh, people are cherry-picking uh, their patients and lemon dropping, which means they're picking the patients that are probably going to have good results, that are not going to have complications. They're dropping patients who are obese, uh, who uh, may be minority, maybe not have the social supports uh, that they have, uh, that they would need to do well in surgery. And so that, as an orthopedic surgeon, I see every day the impacts of that and and we really need risk adjustments in those formulas to be able to help the situation uh, in terms of bundled payments. I think it's a good idea in theory, but it has unintended consequences in terms of access to care uh, to especially minority uh, patients, women, underrepresented uh, uh, minorities in particular, though. What can we do as as individuals or as a nation to sort of turn things around to improve health care delivery for minorities and, and for you know lower income people? Well, we need to get involved, and I think part of it is you know in terms of the political uh, environment is if you make it an issue that that you're going to vote on, then you know, you basically have to vote that issue. You know, people from the NRA basically vote all the time because they're going to take away gun rights uh, with gun control or uh, things like that, uh, but you don't see the same thing, same amount of outrage 
with uh, health care, and you need that outrage. And people are starting to uh, to wake up to that fact because they, you know, as as their employers are increasing the amount of copays and uh, uh, deductibles in the plans, uh, you're seeing that you know people are voting uh, voting that way. Uh, for example, you know it's interesting in in the Nevada caucuses, the the union that had uh, negotiated a really sweet health care plan, uh, they basically didn't want to uh, support any changes like uh, Medicare for all because it would affect them uh, personally. So they were voting uh, their health care, but not a, to the benefit of everybody else. Well, a lot's going to happen this next year in terms of the, the political landscape. And it's difficult to say what's going to end up, you know, end up uh, happening. But given the current state of where we're at right now, what can orthopedists do? What can healthcare providers do to sort of even the playing field so more people can have good health care delivery? Well, I think everybody has a responsibility uh, to look at their patient populations, uh, to try to be more inclusive. Uh, with their patients uh, to basically do their best uh, to be culturally aware, and also you know, you know, and I do this myself. I mean, I provide a certain amount of charity care in my uh, in my office, but you know, physicians are stretched. Every year, you know, uh, the reimbursements uh, uh, either don't change or are cut. And so you have to look at major changes in the system uh, to make things right. And like I said, my wife gives away uh, many hours uh, a week of her time treating uh, people who don't have anywhere else to go uh, in terms of her uh, uh, free clinic. And so, you know, I think the physicians are, are doing what they can for the most part, but, you know, there are several things that need to be done. You need to train more primary care physicians. Uh, you need to offer some relief from heavy loan burdens. Uh, and that's, you know, it all goes down to, you know, a, a will from, a political will from uh, federal and state government to be able to do that. The health care uh, management of people is a very complex issue. So to try and give a summary statement, what would be your goal or your dream for how you would change the health care system? I would definitely aim for universal health care. And so, uh, you know, if you're looking at uh, making a system, I think Medicare for all would be an interesting option. Uh, one idea that, that could be applied is offer people the option uh, to buy into Medicare you know, keep the private system, you know, do the, uh, where they do the supplements or, or do Medicare Advantage, but, you know, offer it to everybody. You know, that's a start uh, to be able to buy into that system. And, you know, if people want to keep their private plan, then let them keep their private plan. Uh, but, you know, uh, we'll see how these things uh, resolve. Because I don't think that, you know, it's going to take a lot of horse trading to get anything passed in Congress and to be uh, signed into legislation. And, you know, even when the ACA was passed, 
You know, they basically had to bring in uh, uh, Senator uh, Ted Kennedy uh, almost from his deathbed to to put in the final vote so that it would get passed. And so it's not going to be easy uh, to get anything passed. Uh, this is going to be an issue that's uh, going to continue to be problematic for years to come. And as people get mad about it, they need to vote on this issue. Dr. Santos, thank you very much for your time. and Thank you for your thoughts on, on the health care system. And, and thank your wife for all that she does to better, you know, the, the minority patients who need her help, who need her help desperately. So appreciate it. Thank you, Eileen. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of the Health Disparities Podcast. We hope you found it interesting, and please remember to subscribe on iTunes, or you can sign up on our website to receive notification of new episodes. I'm Eileen Bodie, and on the behalf of Movement is Life, thank you for your time. Thank you.